the new theme song? <laughs> Wait, what song is this? This is John Cale. Oh, you know more than I know. Terry Riley. Going straight into it. No, nah, no, nah, we can do a real, real intro. No, I like this. Just let it ride. Is this the first this track on the album? First track, this is the John Kill fan podcast. Connecting the classics, John Kale, Terry Riley. This is the collaborations episode. It's a nine minute song, so I thought maybe we just uh, get it going. Is this what you're choosing for your connection? Yeah, so maybe we just jump in. So this is Connecting the Classics. This week, we're doing collaborations albums. I immediately thought of John Cale, Terry Riley, uh, since we're big fans of John Cale and we hadn't talked about Terry Riley yet. Uh, and then you fired back with... Fired back with Lil Wayne and Birdman, like father, like son. And so, it sounds like you like this album. It's pretty uh, chaotic, so maybe, you, <laughs> maybe I'll pause it. <laughs> no, I like it a lot. So let's explain real quick what the podcast is. We, yeah. uh, my name is Will Hagel, music enthusiast, music writer. This is my co-host Lee Robinson, music enthusiast, music curator. And we pick two albums each week. We connect them using tangential references, Kevin Bacon style. And you know, we just talk about how albums are connected. And you know, how are we going to get from what you just heard, John Cale, Terry Riley? to Lil Wayne and Birdman because this is a collaborative episode. Real quick, while we're paused, yeah. I just want to give a shout out to a listener who wrote in and you can email us if you want to suggest a theme and if we use your theme, we'll Venmo you $1 at connectingtheclassics at gmail.com. A listener named Emu suggested the theme Most Improved Bands or Artists Whose Later Albums Are Better Than Their Debut. And they spelled who's like wrong, that. and then they followed up with the correct spelling of who's. So five <laughs> points for their grammar. And I like that. I think we might use that. And if we do, we'll Venmo you $1 in Emu. But let's get back to John Cale and Terry Riley. So we're going to start with Lee's album, going to my album, weaving webs back and forth with tangential references, Kevin Bacon style. All right. Should I start it over? I, I know I jumped the gun. It just gets me so juiced. Just launch this, back in. This is the first track on the album. Real quick, your thoughts, though, because it is a very chaotic album. Uh, Terry Riley is like a minimalist composer, experimental tape music artist. And then you've got John Cale, obviously, who we've talked a lot about from the Velvet Underground, viola, bass player, and general art rock uh, enthusiast. Uh, so I think when the two come together, it's this really cool blend. Um, this album's 1970. So, you know, very shortly after John Cale's whole thing in Velvet Underground. Yeah, I had no idea what to expect. Obviously, I love John Cale. I love the instant John Cale get out of jail free card with your pick. <laughs> Put it on in the car while I was driving uh, with my wife, Anna. We were looking for parking and it was really stressing us both out, but I was, <laughs> I, I was into it, but it just made the act of parking a lot harder. And then I put it on again and I was like, wow, this is totally different than, you know, Velvet Underground. But there's some stuff that's kind of similar, I guess. And I really like this opening track in particular. I picked it as well, but I also have a backup track that we can play at the end that's not nine minutes long. All right, perfect. Um, yeah, I think it's a great start to the album. Um, 
The whole album it just keeps I've, going. Yeah, I've heard the term freak out jazz, and I think that's a great term because there is this bit of a build uh, in how chaotic it feels, and then it maybe will come back down and then, uh, you know, build again, which to me is very much like a freak out experience, maybe if you're on drugs or something. So this first track is called Church of Anthrax. It's the name of the album. And um, I'm going to start it over. That's the best part of the, the song. It's like the first two minutes. Also love the drone. Terry Riley plays organ and saxophone. Funky bass. one thing I did want to talk to you about is sort of the idea of like what is is there a line between like a collaboration and just like being in a group together or a duo uh, it's something I talk a lot about at work so it's something that I'm curious your takes on we have a very strict definition where a collaboration sort of implies a one-off project or maybe a contained collaboration for a certain amount of work as a where, whereas like a group or a, a duo is this entity. Thoughts? I think that's spot on, but then it's like a collaboration like Run the Jewels or something, which is LP and Killer Mike. Like they're both established artists in their own right. And then they come together and then they end up making five albums or whatever it is that they yeah. put together. And then Run the Jewels almost became its own group. I would so argue that, So is it a yeah. collaboration anymore? And it's like, like you're saying, like every sort of project is a collaboration but sometimes i think it can evolve into something bigger i guess is how i would define it well to me this is like the telltale sign is you're using the people's names to sort of bring in their what people may know about the individual artists into the project yeah uh, which i think you see here um, yeah, I, I think was, it, like I said, it has to be kind of two established people already that are coming together to do something different, where they each have their own separate careers. That's how I was yeah. thinking about it, at least for this episode. Definitely. Um, I was also disappointed to learn that it sounds like Terry Riley and John Kill had some disagreements about sort of the final sound of the album. Who wanted what? Um, I, I guess that John Kill kept adding guitar parts during the mixing process and, and Terry Riley's ultimate minimalist and he's yeah, like and he take it like, out take it yeah. out he's like it's all over my spots <laughs> alright here's Terry Riley's saxophone really drives it oh totally that bass line's amazing 
and then it allows the saxophone to just go crazy on top. So do you, have you listened to much kind of like improvisational kind of experimental jazz of the late sixties? Not early really, 70s? to be honest. How do you feel about sort of this dissonant, chaotic style of I mean, of I music? like this a lot, as yeah. you know, I think. So I prefer this to something smooth. Sure. But I will say, I was thinking about like recording songs and stuff. And nowadays, obviously this is very live feel. But nowadays when you can make stuff in your bedroom and as like someone who does that on my own, it can become, it's really easy to just keep adding more and more guitar parts and stuff. Yeah. Like I need the little Terry Riley in me to say, you know, sometimes minimalism is better. And usually it is, I think. What I forgot to mention actually just reminded me that a lot of this was done in one take. Mm. So that could also be part of why Riley was kind of like, we've done what we needed to do on it. Like stop adding stuff to it. And that's a jazz thing of like being in the totally. moment, just you playing got whatever take. you're feeling. Yeah. This almost sounds like an orchestra warming up. Yeah, and then does. somehow it all comes together. Everyone's like playing something different. Yeah, like the bass player started it with just like a little jam and then everyone built on it. This should definitely be used in like an action movie sequence, this song, like a nine minute fight scene where this just keeps yeah. going. Like John Wick or something. Yeah. Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> yeah. Heist. Heist. Definitely heist music. Now I just can't stop picturing like John Cale and Terry Riley walking through the casino. <laughs> He's like throwing chips on the table, wearing sunglasses. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about Terry Riley, but... Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to look at pictures of him. I saw he but, wears a weird outfit or something. Yeah, he basically looks like a wizard. Yeah. He's got like a long white beard and long uh, hair where he's like bald on the top. Yeah. And dresses in like robes. Well, listeners, just so you know, we're just like jazz. I didn't tell Will I was going to launch into this song instead of the theme song. And yeah, we're in the moment now. But podcasts are jazz, so... We, re- we did our solos. And the good thing about podcasts is we can edit stuff out. So I'm going to edit that out. Or else, if I leave <laughs> it in, I'm going to subtract 10 points for my score. Because we are a friendly competitive radio hour. Yeah, it would be hard to park to this, so- this uh, song and album. Parking itself is just such a stressful event. And when you're circling around a parking garage and there's no spots and then people are walking in or standing by their cars and you're like are they getting in or are they getting out (laughs) oh that spot's compact only and someone's parked over the line so i can't fit in so if they're over the line do you still go for it and you're like i just keep their car and then drive off
Well, even if you park there, then you know they're going to open the door and they're going to scratch your car. And what if they can't fit in? It's not your fault, but then they got to go through the passenger door. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell someone, you, you know, go ahead and get out. We're going in. Do you do the thing where if someone looks like they're walking to their car, you pull up Roll and your put on your down. Yeah. <laughs> hey, are you leaving? <laughs> and then you put on this song and like, because you're going to be sitting there for nine minutes while they Just check their texts. Yeah. Do you have the patience to do that? If I'm really desperate, I might ask, are you leaving? But sometimes people will just like be like, yeah, and then they take like 10 minutes to leave. Right. And then it's annoying when you're in the car and someone asks you that, because it's like, well, I'm not on your schedule. I'm on my schedule. I want to back out whenever. Yeah. I got to send these texts. I got to eat some fries. <laughs> So, just for reference, I'm trying to remember, when did John Cale leave Velvet Underground? Wiki says 1968. That seems so early. Yeah. Maybe that's possible. Maybe. Because maybe they weren't a band for very long. I don't know. Well, it just says that's his last recording session. So, maybe they had stuff built up and they had a couple of releases still with his music on it. So, when did this album come out? So, this album is 1971. I think recorded in late 1970 so, so yeah two years after okay velvet underground so i wonder too how much john kale wanted to be i know lou reed more wanted to be a rock star but i wonder how much john kale liked being in that kind of band i think he did but i wonder if he was like i want to really do this like freak out stuff that i can't do in a rock band so i i was reading i forget where this was but the quote was i'm a classical composer who like engages in rock and roll to dishevel myself or something like that oh my god that's great I'll give you 100 points i feel like for that. that that sums up what you're just describing which is like terry riley is very much a composer he he is really famous for a piece of music that he wrote so he comes from the uh, world of like minimalist composers and john cage and steve reich and all those lamont young so it totally makes sense that John Cale probably wanted this collaboration. Do you think but. John Cale was hitting Yamaha keyboards ever in his career? <laughs> Maybe. Because that leads me into Lil Wayne and Birdman. Yeah, like so father, like son. What's your thinking on this one? I mean, when we were talking collaborative albums, I feel like this one came to the top of my mind. Obviously, there's so many to choose from. I feel like especially in hip hop because it's, you know, like people just establish themselves and then it's kind of more nat I wouldn't say easier, but more natural for like two rappers to collaborate or a rapper and a producer to collaborate than it is like people who are already in bands to switch over with other bands, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But I don't know. This is just a classic album that I feel like in Lil Wayne's discography, it kind of maybe gets overlooked especially as time goes on but when it came out in 2006 i was listening to it a lot did you have any familiarity with the album so i had my big realization was that i was a complete little little wayne hater during his mm. like prime 
And I've realized that that same attitude, I think, extended to sports as well. And as I've gotten older, I've had this appreciation for people that have just like achieved success because it's it's hard to do that, especially consistently. So when it comes to people like Lil Wayne or Tom Brady or LeBron, I, I feel like I got to give my flowers now that I'm older and I have the hindsight that like, yeah, damn, they, they had a career that was actually like pretty successful. And I feel like when people are the biggest person of the moment and whatever their field is, yeah, then especially it's like, you know, coming from Champaign, Illinois, five points where it's like Michael Jordan was the greatest of all time throughout my childhood. And then it's like, who is Kobe? Like, what is this guy doing? And who's yeah. LeBron? And then you just hate them and you find the stuff you don't like about them just because they're not on your team. Yep. And I know some Lil Wayne haters in high school, but also he was like, if not the biggest, one of people consider him like the best rapper around this time. Or he called himself the best rapper alive. And then he just put out a shit ton of projects where he's just rapping back to back with like sort of a style and similes and stuff that no one else was doing. And I think too, we'll be talking about it, but just now that it's so far down the line, like seeing how much influence he's had on younger generations and yeah. stuff. But let's launch in the the hit from this album, actually revisiting it. I was like, there's some duds on here, but there's a lot of songs that I used to love, like Leather So Soft and then Army Guns. When I was re-listening to it, I was like, damn, this song is pretty good. But this album, you know, like even putting back 2006, I don't know when Lollipop came out, but I feel like that's what pushed Lil Wayne like even farther into superstardom. And obviously he was like on a mixtape run, but still at the time, like doing an album with Birdman, even though Birdman's kind of barely on the whole album, he is on it. But I don't know, it's just an interesting collaboration because Birdman, you know, is who discovered Lil Wayne when he was 12. Birdman is the, for those who don't know, Cash Money Records founder and was in, was it Big Timers with uh, Manny Fresh? I don't claim to pronounce things right, but yep. And that's a duo, not a collaboration. There you go. And basically he would go around New Orleans, Louisiana, discovering hip hop acts. Lil Wayne, when he was 12, signed with the Hot Boys. Juvenile, yeah. And we've listened to him on a little bit in the past. But this was the undeniable hit at the time and the standout track of the album. Stunting like my daddy. <laughs> nice. Starts the exact same as uh, John <laughs> Cale. Oh, wait, this is John Cale. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's okay. Wrong thing. Let me start this over. Stunt like my daddy. Yamaha hitting the Yamaha like uh, John Cale. I feel like a whole whole genre was like around this kind of beat. Yeah, well, that's the other thing is I don't know if we've really talked about bounce music, which is a style that I don't fully understand, but it's like the super New Orleans style of music that even like Cash Money Records kind of popularized nationwide globally or whatever i don't know i guess it's just like faster kind of it's i'm sure there's a better way to describe it but i don't know exactly what it is 
is a Yamaha 1100, is that a motorcycle or ATV or do you know? I think it's probably a motorcycle, but I always just okay. love that when he goes Yamaha. And I always <laughs> imagine the keyboard. Yeah. yeah, bitch, wait. That's all I gotta say. KC, little niggas, the money in the way. And I'm, I'm sitting high against the ride blaze. And if you ain't gonna ride fly, then you might as well hate shit. I gotta eat, yeah, even though I ain't no it ain't my birthday, but I got my name on the cake. Shit, believe that. And if the man's won't play, and I'm gonna fuck around and put the ball brains on the gate. Hey, pick them up, fuck them, let them lay. Where I'm from, we see a fucking day. There you go. Yep, got the motorcycle jacket. Yeah, this isn't even Lil Wayne's like best lyrics, so it probably didn't convert a hater, but this was still a hit at the time. Well, I just remember thinking that sound of the little over the beat is like Young Dro and I'm trying to remember all those Young Jock and all those Southern rappers who had beats like that. There's Birdman. We can talk over Birdman. But yeah, I feel like... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Birdman was probably my least favorite part. the stunt like my daddy and like the like father like son thing is yeah what's that interesting. because it was never really clear because there was a infamous picture with Lil Wayne kissing Birdman that came out around this time and then he addressed it on the DJ Khaled song where he's like damn right I kiss my daddy that's just my daddy I kiss my daddy like he's chewing on something but yeah i think you know on this album there's like a lot of themes of the mafia and stuff like that so and family right that yeah and i think it. it's just you know like birdman discovered him like i said when he was 12 so i think he's just a father figure kind of i had a dream too when i was in high school that birdman punched me in the chest multiple times and uh -huh. kept like telling me about how to succeed in the music industry and then he just kept punching me in the chest and I oh hurt my really God. bad. <laughs> that stuck with me over all these years. Yeah, 
So yeah, Birdman, super interesting figure in music history as kind of the executive who also raps, but really just kind of puts together talent and punches yeah. me in the chest in my dreams. Uh-huh. He, he also goes by Baby, and I was reading up on him, and I found out that his parents took him home from the hospital and didn't have he, a name for him for like a week, so they just uh, called him Baby. <laughs> I think it's because he's looked the same way he has his whole life as a baby. <laughs> he does kind of, yeah, have the baby face and uh, build. Or like how, you know, babies can sometimes look like old men. Yeah. I can see a baby looking just like Birdman. Definitely. All right, moving on. All right, moving on. So we were talking about Terry Riley. I am just uh, here to punish Will, so I've got another long song here. We're already 30 minutes in after thought, our first songs. <laughs> I thought we could just do a, a little taster of what the world Terry Riley comes from. Um, as I mentioned, he he's like a, definitely considered a composer. And his first piece that's considered sort of the birth of minimalism is called NC because it's written in the key of C. And it's a 45-minute long song, uh, but super um, you know, groundbreaking for its time. This is 1964. Um, and it's known for, I think what you'll hear is sort of the loop and repetition uh, techniques that I don't think you normally associate with classical music. Uh, and I think it ushered in a really cool era of the Steve Reich and the Philip Glass and all that. So launching in Terry Riley, 1964 NC. How long did you say this is? 40 minutes. Lock in. Sounds like the Psycho theme song, or shower scene. feels modern now but in 1964 this is still pretty groundbreaking it's like subtle i guess I unfortunately grabbed the wrong MP3. I mean, this is the piece, but this isn't actually his original version, which is really disappointing. Wow. This is a re-recording a couple years later. But this is still Terry Riley. It's still the, the piece that he wrote, yeah. 
in the way that in classical music, right, you have the oh, right. original you composer and the song, but then someone else might perform it. But yeah, I'm just giving you a general idea here. How many years later did this come out after the original? Uh, this is 1970, so I guess four or six years later. I'm going to give you minus six points. Yeah, please. But yeah, I think the other thing I wanted to talk about, reason I wanted to play one of the songs is just, I, I think in past episodes we've talked about sort of the influence that the Bay Area has had on experimental music. And I, I don't think it can be understated that like there was so much incredible like experimentation being done during the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and it touched so many different ways. We talked about Jerry Garcia, uh, you know, getting into experimental tape music that's very much in Terry Riley's orbit. Uh, he also was collaborating with like the early synthesizer people. So uh, we've talked about, uh, what's her name? Not facing on it. Uh, there's Morton Sabotnik and, um, shoot, I'm, I'm spacing her name. I think it might be, I'll it's come not back enough to people it. named Mort anymore. Yeah, right, Morton. Oh, Morton. Uh, Pauline Oliveros as well. Uh, so you've got this, you know, tape music, you've got synthesizers, and then you've got Terry Riley sort of starting this concept that like classical music can be done in a way that's not how it's historically been done for hundreds of years. So pretty exciting stuff. Bay Area so, doesn't get as much credit as it should, I don't think. So what makes it classical in your opinion well it's all the same sort of structure right so you've got people reading music in musical notation you've got uh you know an orchestra right you've got oboes flutes actually i can read you the in instrumentation here uh, saxophone trumpets percussion piano guitar bass and trombones So were Mozart and Beethoven and all those guys intellectuals? Uh, I don't think intellectual probably is not the right word, but they were, you know, composers. They were just artists of their time. Yeah, I don't think they did anything beyond music. I'm just wondering because back then it seemed like the only people who were doing music were like really studying the time signature. It was almost more mathematical. Yeah compared to like the olden times when people were, you know, it was more f from the common person or whatever. Yeah, so like how did it make that transition? Yeah. I, I guess I would attribute some of it to the monarchy and sort of the aristocratic uh, desire for entertainment. So there was like operas and performances at like uh, galas and soirees and all that stuff that I think was a opportunity for these musicians or composers, however you want to think of them, to, you know, perform. That makes sense. Give me 10 points for soiree. Hey, thanks. But yeah, so I think the other concept that you're hinting at is like, well, if they're like, how does, how do these composers go from a piano to then like gigantic orchestras? And I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I don't know where the idea of an orchestra came from. 
You'll find out more on our sister podcast, Recorded History of Music, <laughs> when we look into that. All right, we've done six minutes. I'll pass it back. It's just building here. Oh, cut me off just when I needed a release from the tension. But yeah, I love loops. Yeah. So, and that, like you said, it was cool to see how it kind of looped and it felt like it was being repetitive, but then something new would come in and then everything yeah. else would follow that, which like you said is... I guess modern now, but revolutionary at the time. So yeah, and a lot of rhythm, rhythmic aspects that I don't think classical, like traditional classic music, classical music does right, uh, where it was very much almost like polyrhythms and, um, you know, built around almost a four-four. Whereas mm-hmm. to me, like old classical music doesn't even really have a standard like, then, then it's like feels like the rhythm changes constantly. Yeah, it's almost more emotive though in the way the older stuff yeah where it's like just maybe a composer just falling like i feel this and now i feel this and yeah. it goes this way i don't know you know more than i know i'm just repeating like what you said like a loop splashes yeah splashes of percussion rather than sort of a pulse so we left off Lil wayne and birdman stunt like my daddy launching into another song that from a collaboration that birdman put together that came out in 2014 so that's what eight years a presidency two-term presidency after like father like son and i think maybe just an example of lil wayne's influence not that long but a long enough later and what birdman was doing at the time another undisputed classic rich gang Nice. London on the track, Rich Homie, Quan, and Lil Young Thug, Lifestyle. Did a lot of shit just to live this here lifestyle. Came straight from the bottom to the top of my lifestyle. You know the song. At this point, I didn't know who, if Quan was going to keep up with Young Thug. Who doesn't really? You say we don't have time to see doctors. Yeah. Hey, do this shit for my daughters and all my sons, bitch. Do this shit for my daughters and all my sons. Wow, nice. Yeah, I always think it's interesting because Young Thug around this time or even a little earlier was kind of seen as just a Lil Wayne clone or someone who was just ripping off Lil Wayne, especially as Lil Wayne went into like auto-tune and more experimentalization. But since you were talking about composers in the 60s, I do feel like this era, which wasn't that long ago, but now it's 10 years ago now. So it's like the same distance from Stunt Like My Daddy when this came out. Yeah. Hold on. 
But yeah, I feel like I was going to compare it to the 60s where Young Thug and Future and a lot of the artists then who kind of ripped them off were doing really experimental stuff, I would say, with their voices. And Future was doing it earlier, but really at this time, he and Young Thug became like huge superstars. Well, I'd almost argue too that like Lil Wayne and Young Thug had the sort of uh, carefree, like say whatever the hell they want style. Yeah, that I see a lot similarities. And then also like Young Thug had the thing where he would wear dresses and like also like Lil Wayne kissed Birdman and called him his daddy. He would call people like Bay and Hubby and stuff like that. Had kind of that androgynous thing where he's pushing the boundaries by being weird. And Rich Homie Kwan, I feel like yeah, he just doesn't reach the same level. Yeah. But he's entertaining. And then in the Beethoven? Is that what he said? I thought. And then the video shows Birdman just. Uh, that's the best part. Yeah, Sitting in the ocean, Pacific that is. <laughs> but yeah, the video just shows Birdman just looking around at all his accomplishments, gold records, platinum records. Birdman, I don't know, interesting character. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just being a hater. I think you are. Definitely more to him from behind the scenes, at least as a producer. Yeah, just as a figure in the music industry. Pass it back. All right. So let's see. We left off with Terry Riley in C, his famous composition. Kind of started the um, minimalism movement. So that got me thinking, what are some songs that are in C? (laughs) There's a lot of songs, let me tell you. Hey, last song, we were in the C, Pacific, that is. That's true. So I went with the one that we haven't talked about a group uh, in a minute. Some good collaboration stories I wanted to talk about. Um, this is Fleetwood Mac Dreams. But going with a little uh, upbeat dance remix here since, you know, we've all heard Dreams enough. Launch it. Dreams. I had a dream where Birdman punched me in the chest. We don't plan this. the poolside remix it is no (laughs) is it really sounds like it though poolside edit so reason i wanted to talk about fleetwood mac is so did you know lindsey buckingham and stevie nicks were in a group together so they kind of joined Fleetwood Mac as a package. Mm. You know more than I know. I didn't know that. And so prior to them joining, you know, Fleetwood Mac had been a group 
almost more blues rock focused. The song makes me want to dance with my shoulders. Yeah. I don't know if that's a dance with popping your shoulders. I guess it is. <laughs> the shimmy. We hit a little shimmy. So you're saying Fleetwood Mac, you consider them a collaboration or that became No, I'm stretching it. Just in that it was two established groups that decided to merge. So would you consider Jay-Z Linkin Park? Because I almost chose one of those songs. Yes, that's definitely a collaboration. Even though it seems like it was probably just a recording engineer who just mashed them up. Oh, I guess it's a good point. Did they never in the same room together? I don't know. Another nine minute song. <laughs> and I'll say about Young Thug, since we got nine more minutes. <laughs> yeah. A lot, of, like the style of vocals that we're listening to now, I think a lot of people at the time, especially, heard Young Thug and kind of thought, like, he's not really saying anything, but it sounds good. Yeah. Like they almost heard it as. Yeah, and he does do that really well but then also he has a lot of good lyrics that are sort of similar to the style Lil Wayne popularized so it's like a weird blend yeah I mean wasn't there an era where Lil Wayne would kind of sing as well like sing in his lyrics yeah so he had the whole auto-tune phase yeah think people naturally want a break in the dance now because i feel like that's a trope of edm djs where the music will kind of the beat will cut out and then it builds up with like a Come big swirling in. and then everyone's like just kind of taking a break and then the beat comes in and everyone's like going nuts yeah i think it gives some like some structure to you know clue people in like pay attention now yeah like take a break here and then go back in like a composer Wow. So the the nickname for uh, Mick Fleetwood, the sort of leader of the of Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, the CV nickname. Was Big Daddy. <laughs> we don't plan this. It's the daddy episode. Evergreen podcast. So this is a question I got wrong in trivia the other day. Do you know the name of Adam Sandler's character in Big Daddy? Nah, I, I can guess, but I have no idea. Is it Adam? It's Sonny. Sonny. Oh, that makes sense. Fathers and sons, muddy waters. Nice. 
I was going to kind of explain to you the whole drama of trying to compete with Mac, but I kind of just want to vibe out. A lot of like love affairs, people cheating on each other. I don't Lizzie really Buckingham. know much about it. So Lizzie Buckingham and Stevie Nicks were kind of a thing. They were also in a group together, but they were also a couple. And uh, Fleetwood, Nick Fleetwood and Christy McVie. Uh, I have that right? They were a, a couple as well. And so then everyone just like fell in love with each other and it just got really messy. Which, was it rare at the time? I know Velvet Underground collaborated with Nico, but it seems like a lot of bands were either just all male or all female. And there weren't a lot of cross gender, cross sex. Um, and Fleetwood Mac is an example of one. I mean, there definitely were. They're just a good example of it because how everyone like hooked up with each other. <laughs> um, what I had wrong was it's Christine McVie and uh, John McVie, the bass player. They're the, mm. the couple together. It's a big daddy. Fleet Fleetwood is just like he's doing his own thing. So this is probably a, not the right question to ask, but do you feel like there's something sexual in music? I think and it's like, like a job. Collaborate. Oh, you think it's more of a job than like a chemistry? Well, it's, it's like people fall in love with their coworkers. Same idea. Oh, I see. Because time it's around proximity. Because yeah, I know there's a thing with John Cale and Lou Reed that we talked about where it's like everyone thought that they were lovers because they spent all their time together and they'd get in fights yeah. and stuff and they basically were lovers. Yeah. I mean, relationships to a sense... You know, they they carry that quality into your different areas, your friends, your work coworkers. Your so a collaboration partners. can see be seen as like a one night stand. Wow. Where it's like you see what's gonna come out of it rather than the long relationship of a band. Totally. Yeah, and sometimes you just got that lightning in the bottle. Mm-hmm. That chemistry, but then it's like it just doesn't uh, work beyond that space. All right, I'm going to fade it out. We've done enough of Stevie Nicks' vocals being chopped up. The other weird thing is when there's like one front person of a band who then keeps collaborating with other artists but calls it a different name. Yeah. Yeah, Which there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a common thing that happens in music too, where it's like blurs the lines of what is collaboration and... What does it all mean? Mm-hmm. But you passing it back? I'll pass it back. All right. We left off. Rich gang lifestyle. Do this for all for my father and all, or do this for my daughter and all my sons. As Young Thug says, this is the daddy episode. So we're going here into a band. Not from Champaign, Illinois, which would have been five points. Because that's where Alison Krauss is from, who she did a legendary collaboration with Robert Plant, uh-huh. which I was trying to weasel one of those songs in, but none of them were really hitting for me. But if you've never watched any of the videos, watch it. It's kind of funny to see Robert Plant as kind of a pop star in his old age. Yeah. Not rocking out. Maybe we'll play it on a future episode. But this is Jeff Tweedy from Chicago, North nice. Champagne, five points. 
and a collaboration from 2014, same year as Rich Gang, with his son, Spencer, who was 18 at the time. This was going to be the Jeff Tweedy, who is of Wilco solo album. But he basically called the band Tweedy and has his son, Spencer, playing drums. Launching into Hazel. It's the dad episode. And we're in an evergreen podcast, but I went to the Orange Theory gym yesterday. On Father's Day. On Father's Day. And they said, are you a dad of any kind? A cat? A dog? Anything? (laughs) And I was like, oh, I guess dog. My dog's name is... Spencer Tweedy on the drums. Would you ever be in a band with your dad? Yeah. Would you? Yeah, it'd be fun, right? I think I've told it before, but my dad always tells me how he was in a band when he was a kid called My Generation. I heard the bass. And he thinks he was only in a band because his mom had a car and could drive the band to practice. So this is another album that kind of like father like son collaboration between a father and a son and maybe overlooked in Jeff Tweedy's discography but I think it's pretty interesting I was reading up on it apparently he recorded nine or he had 90 songs written for the album ended up making a double album a lot of the songs are kind of stripped down compared to Wilco that will have more of the experimental John Cale drones. I thought this one had some funky bass, got Jeff Tweedy on the bass. Another yeah, interesting thing of this album is like, not this song, but a lot of them were just iPhone demos of Jeff Tweedy playing acoustic guitar, and then they use that in the final mix. title of the album is Sukari, which was the nickname of Spencer's mother, who was diagnosed with cancer at the time this was being recorded. Wilco, Ultimate Dad Music. I saw another collaboration was Wilco and Billy Bragg, California Stars. I think we've listened to it on the podcast at one point. Love it. The other thing about this is I was reading an interview with Spencer Tweedy and he said people were making fun of him when Tweedy performed in Athens, Georgia record shop because the one album he picked out to buy was Bill Monroe and James Monroe's Father and Son, uh, which I didn't know much about, but there aren't a lot of examples, I don't think, of father-son or father-daughter, mother-daughter musical groups, Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, parents pass on a lot of musical influences to their kids and there are examples of like john bonham's son filling in and led zeppelin speaking of robert plant 
after John Bonham died or like the kid, I think Eddie Food Van Fires. Halen's kid. Yeah. yeah, Eddie Van Halen's kid's a good example. But not as much of like active collaborations. And I guess Bill Monroe and James Monroe were father-son bluegrass folk duo. But I'm going to go on a run because I'm feeling myself nice. right now. And, uh, uh, you know, Bill Monroe and James Monroe, the first song on their album, Father and Son, is Haven't Seen Mary in Years, which reminds me of a woman named Mary Lou Reed. <laughs> okay. Who is a, was an Idaho state senator and an environmental activist, I believe. I don't know. I just Googled Mary Lou Reed and... I thought maybe Lou Reed mentioned Mary in his lyrics at one point. Yeah. But there is actually a person named Mary Lou Reed. So we're launching into another collaboration that was hated at the time by many, kind of like Linkin Park Jay-Z. But over the test of time, people like it a little bit more. This is Lou Reed and Metallica from wow. the album Lulu, The View. Thousand points. Video directed by Darren Aronofsky. Good drumming. I am a chorus of the voices that gather up the magnets set before me. I attract you and repel you, a science of the heart and blood and meaning. I want you on the floor And in a coffin your soul shaking I want to have you downing Every meaning you've amassed Like a fortune Oh, throw it away But worship someone Who actively despises you For worship someone Who actively despises you I am the root What is This is Lou Reed right here. No, no. I am the tablet. These ten stories. Worship, worship. Pain and evil have their place in hypocrisy. Worship, me. worship. Church I of Anthrax. So this whole album is essentially just Lou Reed, like spoken word poetry over Metallica riffs. And I was reading that when this album, or when this song debuted, the YouTube video had twice as many dislikes as likes, and the labels came out. (laughs) And I think a lot of people just didn't understand it at the time, but maybe especially as like Lou Reed's influence has grown over time. People have liked it more. Wiki gives it avant-garde metal as a genre designation. I am the table. So I guess this collaboration came about because it was like the 25th anniversary of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something like that and Metallica 
performed with Sweet Jane with Lou Reed. And then they decided to collaborate after. And yeah, I guess the album is kind of based on this German playwright, Frank Wedekein. He had Lulu plays. I don't know, it's too esoteric avant-garde for me. But definitely very dissonant. Bravo! Bravo! I think Brilliant. that's I think that's Darren Aronofsky. But uh yeah. Love it. Launching in, which means leads me to John Cale, a Terry Riley, yes. nine minute song. Now I'll pass it back. Love it. We got mm, some John Cale, some Lou Reed. I think you're out of jail. I forget the Lou, Lou Reed, Reed, get out of jail, Freed. Freed. <laughs> All right, we left off Fleetwood Mac, Dreams. Uh, wanted to mention Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks joining the group and making everything all messy. Um, and then in the same vein of sort of experimental artists collaborating, uh, we've talked a little bit about Brian Eno last week. So I wanted to bring him up again since he's often collaborating with artists. And... I don't think we've talked about Harold Budd yet, have we? Maybe we have. I don't know. But a experimental ambient music pianist, piano player. So this is from their second album together. So it started as uh, Brian Eno producing an, a Harold Budd album. And then the next release was a collaboration album together. This is First Light. So I'm going to take things down a little slower. This is 1980. This is the perfect thing to follow Metallica and Lou Reed. <laughs> yeah. So it's the opening track on their album called Ambient 2, The Plateau of Mirror. So this is when Brian Eno's really leaning into this idea of he's the ambient music guru. And he has a couple of collaborations with different sort of ambient artists in this time period. And Ambient 1 was his famous Music for Airports, which is the piano piece that he did that kind of got him famous if an airport was playing this and no one was talking it would be way more pleasant to travel oh it'd be so nice so funny you mentioned that the old radio station i worked at got um booked by uh what is it called what's the big station union station mm -hmm. to do sort of a sound installation uh, of music like this for people and did it make people happier yeah yeah they got rebooked every year for it nice so they would 
they would you know make a mix of this kind of music. Yeah, because it's like you could put on the song we opened with while parking or traveling. Yeah. If you put this on, it's going to impact your mood a little differently. And that's the power of music. Well, and so this one, I, another reason I want to talk about this is there's some great written stuff about their collaboration style in general. Because uh, again, you know, Eno is very hands off. I mentioned he's kind of like has this enigmatic music guru aspect to him. Kind of like, um, what's his name? Rick Rubin. I definitely mm-hmm. get similar vibes. But Brian Eno, I would say, is even quieter than Rick Rubin. But uh, Eno explained production was mostly Bud improvising in a sound world that Eno created. Uh, you know, while Bud would improvise, Eno would manage the sound. He would set up the piano to be treated with electronic equipment, and then Bud would improvise on it. Mm. So it's sort of this, like, you know, creative process where one person's reacting to something that another person does, but on sort of different planes. Planes, airports. Wow. Yeah, they're weaving webs. And then Harold Budd also noted this was the first time he sort of saw the studio as a compositional tool. I feel like that's kind of gets into what we were talking about, even with John Cale, Terry Riley, and like the difference between classical music when they were writing it and performing it in churches or whatever in the old days, to then the studio becoming a tool where you can do more you can always add more guitar yeah and I'd even argue that sometimes there's so much too many options with something like Ableton that it's hard to remember that it's it can help you sometimes it feels like you have too much choice yeah or there's too much to learn yeah piano sounds nice on this though all right another seven minute song so i'll go ahead and fade us out here i was downloading the songs for this week and i was just laughing to myself because it was like nine hours 40 (laughs) seven (laughs) nine i had two nine minute songs a long episode but hope that didn't put you to sleep where you're dreaming about Birdman punching you yeah you pass it back or yeah take us home all right i'm taking you home with a little john kale obviously connection here lou reed john kale famous collaboration velvet underground yeah i was gonna play this one the opening song is just great but 
Instead, I chose a different one because, you know, circling back with all my connections, weaving webs, Lil Wayne was Birdman's protege, kind of like Young Thug was Birdman's protege. The protege. Nice. This is my other second favorite. More of a rock feel. I feel like, too, just listening to it now, I don't know what it is, but something with John Cale, and maybe this is Terry Riley playing the keys, but something to, like, hitting the same note over and over again, and drones, like we've talked about. Like, you hear the piano going, like, do-do-do-do, but then yeah. underneath that all, there's always the same note being hit, like, boom, boom, boom. Nice. Drumming on my legs. They could have used Spencer Tweedy on these, this. Yeah. You did the listeners a favor by picking one of the two songs that's under five minutes. That's why I did that. I was like, I could pick the second song, which is eight minutes long, but if we already listened to the nine minute one, I'm going to go with the three minute song. definitely one of those albums though where you put it on and i think it's entirely no it's not entirely instrumental but it's mostly, just one yeah so you Soul put it on Patrick and it, Lee. yeah it all kind of blends together but switches up enough The other important one for anyone who wants more Terry Riley is a, a Rainbow and Curve to Air. It's a couple years after NC and it's a little more polished and it's excellent. <laughs> Couldn't let it be too smooth. Had to yeah, end it right. with some chaos. But I'll pass it back. All right. We've been talking about. Actually, we did talk about Harold Budd and Brian Eno. We're talking about NC. We had Harold Budd playing on the piano. 
describing that it was his first key. Oh. In C. Watching it in Lil Wayne, Birdman, first key. Nice. Was from my baby mama's brother. Wait, real quick, I want to say, love the use of this beat. This is where I was like, if this is Birdman, kind of helping create these beats, definitely props. Sampling Pimp C, another NC, we're, we're in Pimp C. Oh, Pin C. But uh, we also have a Curtis Mayfield song as the sample. Love it. This is when I was, like perked my ears up. I was like, okay. The streets trying to get a whole B. I bought my first key, my first key. In 93, and we was getting them life for 25. Colombian Connect, homie, we was getting fly. We on the grind, our nuts got bigger. And every day we in the motherfucking hood, our guns got bigger. So, Birdman is New Orleans, you said? Yeah. So, I wonder if there was a connection with Houston and, like, New Orleans, because they're not too far. Well, I think, too, on this album, I heard a lot of Lil Wayne saying stuff like, I'm from this, like, we're from the South. It's not like the South got something to say, but saying a lot of, like, listen to us, even though we're from the South. Yeah. So I think maybe just there's a southern connection too. Yeah, it's a cool nod to UGK. Yeah. Who is like legendary for me in terms of southern hip hop. That was one of the first groups I listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, also surprised to see Robin Thicke was on this album. <laughs> I didn't know that. I feel like UGK though, I was going to say too, is definitely one of those groups that like the artists we were listening to a lot around whatever 2006 would reference yeah. back to them and then that's how i found out about them yeah because they're early 90s yeah i lost my dad in 96 and started making moves in 98 wait oh sorry i had to pause it but lost yeah. his dad in 98 yeah so maybe his dad died and then birdman's his new dad yeah and i was just looking up an article so i just googled birdman lil wayne and it was like birdman talked about the kiss and he was saying you know it's just people are reading too much into it it's just my son because like uh, Lil Wayne lost his dad, and so I was kind of a father figure. But anyways, launch back in. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right then. I lost my dad in 96 and started making moves in 98. Yeah. That line killed me. I was, was like, so that funny. is quintessential Lil Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> also, his verse, how he's mixing in the sample source is pretty good. Pretty cool. Yeah, Pimp C's. Yeah.
horns like Terry Riley. Yeah. So what did you end up thinking of the album after you listened to it? I mean, like I said at the top, I've got a lot of respect for what Lil Wayne did. I will say it's not like it doesn't appeal to me. I don't know why, but some some of the beats just don't vibe with me. Yeah. But I definitely appreciate Lil Wayne and and you know Birdman. I'm trying to see more his influence. But it was more to me like disjointed hitters rather than like the whole album. I was just like vibing. Yeah, I think that's accurate. But I didn't have the same nostalgia that I think you might have. I don't remember this album when it came out. But this song is going to be in rotation. I love this beat. Yeah. Alright, we collaborated. We made a podcast. Had our son. Now we're daddies. Welcome to Connecting the Classics. It's a loop. Terry Riley style. What threats were made before? 